0: Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Susie Dennison. I'm the Director of the European Power Programme at the European Council on Foreign Relations, and I'm sitting in this week for Mark Leonard. This week, we're going to be talking about the conflict in Ethiopia, the implications of the conflict for the immediate region so far, and the prospect for transatlantic cooperation around the issue. We have a great lineup to take us through the various different aspects of the conflict. I'm very happy to welcome Alexander Rondos, ECFR Council Member and EU Special Representative to the Horn of Africa, Peyton Knopf, former US diplomat and Senior Advisor to the Africa Programme of the US Institute for Peace, as well as Theo Murphy, our own Director of ECFR's Africa Programme. Thank you all very much for joining. I do want to start off by saying that we have tried to get a speaker from Ethiopia to be with us today, but given the very difficult circumstances um, around talking publicly at the moment on the conflict, that hasn't been possible. So we're going to focus our discussion on international engagement with the conflict. So more than a month ago, the Ethiopian prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, who won the 2019 Nobel Prize, ordered a military offensive against regional forces in Tigray. He said he did so in response to an attack on a military base housing government troops there. And since then, the situation has been spiraling with increasing international concern about access to the Tigray region and reports for the last 24 hours of UN personnel having been attacked while they were trying to to access the region. Theo, can I turn to you first, ask us to give a short overview of, of what's been happening since this started in the beginning of November?
1: Sure. Uh, thanks, Susie. I'll say a few words about how we got to where we are right now in the conflict and then what I think the key question is going forward. The genesis of this conflict is that the representatives of the Tigray region uh, the TPLF, were formerly the rulers of Ethiopia. They were central in the government. They rotated out of power, and the current prime minister and Nobel Prize winner, Abiy Ahmed, took over. So we have a, a situation where there's, you know, there's an element of of history in that relationship where Tigray is the party that once was dominant and now is out. Tensions have been building between the center, Addis Ababa, the capital, and the tigray region over a number of issues there was a plan to be, have hold national elections in ethiopia which was delayed due to the due to the covid virus but some people cast dispersions on that and this kind of started off a tit for tat escalatory cycle that increased the tension between uh, addis ababa the capital and and the tigray region this then broke out into open armed hostilities on the 4th of November. And since then, the government has been able to make progress on the ground in a very significant fashion, very recently claiming that it has full control of the territory on the ground. So including Makala, the capital of, of the Tigray region. That kind of brings us up to the present moment. And from there, it's I think it's, it's worthwhile looking ahead. The question going ahead, is this really over now? Has the government taking control of the capital of the Tigray region, most of the territory, ended the conflict? If it hasn't, then an element that has been present from the beginning, the regionalization of this conflict, is going to emerge more and more into the foreground. Regionalization, in this case, means that It wasn't only the Ethiopian government that's been involved in the hostilities, but also Ethiopia's neighbor to the north, Eritrea. So if we are moving now from a kind of classic ground war into a guerrilla insurgency, the role of Eritrea is going to become ever more prominent.
0: I just ask you to comment on what you think the key factors are that are going to determine whether or not this continues into a new phase?
1: I mean the, the question the question is really for for the TPLF. It now has to switch from, from a ground war to an insurgency. So you have to look at the factors that make you know an insurgency, a rebel movement successful. One is is resupply logistics, the ability to recruit. The second is whether or not there's a safe place for them to withdraw to. You know, do you have a kind of liberated areas that you can you can operate from? And I think a third aspect is really the international community's disposition to your cause. So to what degree will you, as a, as a rebel movement, start to make inroads in terms of swaying the court of public opinion a little bit in your favor? That point is important when we come back to this regionalization or not. If the conflict does continue and it regionalizes, as I said, Eritrea's role will become more prominent. And actually, it may become the sort of protagonist instead of the Ethiopian government. That's so important because if the TPLF is fighting primarily against uh, Ethiopia and not just against Addis Ababa, the, the framing completely changes. Right now, the TPLF is fighting against a Nobel Prize winning prime minister. Ethiopia is a key international ally on a number of fronts, and it's the seat of the African Union. When you turn towards Eritrea, you have a, you have a country whose president has a, has a very different and particular reputation, and you might elicit a very different kind of international response.
0: Peyton, can I turn to you next? Can you talk us through what this eventual regionalisation will mean for dynamic in the Horn of Africa region and, and maybe give us a, a sense of how this conflict is, is, is viewed in the US and, and what, what we might expect in terms of a reaction to a conflict that, that draws Eritrea in more heavily?
2: Happy to do so, Susie, and, and thank you and, and to ECFR for having me today. Um, look, I think there there's a certain momentum behind a fairly significant and substantive shift of the sort of governance models and the multilateral models in the in the region that some of the dynamics that, that Theo just outlined betray. The first shift is sort of away from the federal uh, models that have been the structure of governance in both Ethiopia and Somalia for some years now. The second factor is a shift away from some of the multilateral institutions and mechanisms, whether it's the African Union, whether it's EGAD, the, the East African Regional Bloc, whether it's some of the mechanisms like AMISOM that have been used to mitigate conflict in this rather volatile region for for a few decades now. And those shifts are, are fairly significant when we look at the regionalization of the conflict and the implications thereof. It's particularly true for Sudan as well, given its own precarious transition and the, the fragile sort of cohabitation arrangement between the military and, and other security stakeholders and the civilian authorities uh, in Khartoum. One of the most challenging issues that that cohabitation sort of transitional arrangement wrestles with is the conduct of Sudanese foreign relations. And as Theo, I think, rightly pointed out, the unfolding war in Tigray, the likelihood that it will uh, escalate the security consequences and humanitarian consequences of that will put ever greater strain on, on Sudanese leaders' ability to reconcile some of their differing views of how the new Sudan fits within the region. With respect to the United States, which obviously has a number of interests and and longstanding engagement and relations with all of these countries, what's been interesting to me is to see over the last five weeks, a real consensus emerge in Washington on a bipartisan basis for two things. One, a cessation of hostilities in Ethiopia and a very clear recognition that there are no, uh, there's not going to be a military solution to what is fundamentally political crisis and a political crisis, not just between the federal government and Tigray. But a political crisis that's really unfolding on a national level uh, within uh, Ethiopia, and then, of course, with the regional implications we've just discussed. And then, secondly, that that there needs to be a dialogue on the way forward that involves a full range uh, of Ethiopian stakeholders, including a number uh, of constituencies whose leaders are currently in prison and, in fact, were arrested Uh, even prior to the outbreak of hostilities between the federal government and Tigray. And as we transition here in the United States between a Trump administration and the Biden administration, I suspect that this bipartisan consensus will really shape the landscape in terms of how a Biden administration approaches this very dynamic and fluid uh, situation.
0: And maybe just to push you in terms of other actors in the conflict, do you see this also potentially drawing in greater involvement from the Gulf players? So what's your sense of how much is at stake here in terms of the regionalisation of the conflict?
2: Well, there's a great deal at stake. And I think one of the the challenges that the Biden administration will inherit is the fact that since Abiy came to power, U.S. policy has mostly been predicated on supporting the man rather than supporting a plan for reform. Uh, And so there hasn't been a political Of framework or agenda in the U.S.-Ethiopia bilateral relationship through which the U.S. could exert its influence most effectively. The same, by the way, I think is true with respect to U.S.-Eritrea relations, where you saw an easing of Eritrea's international isolation, to some extent a thaw in U.S.-Eritrean bilateral relations after many difficult years, but really no parameters or even a set of priorities for that bilateral relationship. And what that's led to is an ability for other I think of the Emiratis, the the Saudis, the Turks, the Qataris, others that you mentioned, filling that space. And so the question, I think, for the Biden administration is to what extent it can devise strategies both for mitigating the fallout of some of the Middle Eastern rivalries that have been grafted onto this rather volatile situation in the Horn, And identifying areas where those rivalries can be channeled into more cooperative mechanisms towards stability and in support of some of the aspirations for reform that animated Prime Minister Abiy's rise to power in the first instance, and were certainly instrumental in the overthrow of Omar Bashir in Sudan and and the transitional government uh, that is there now.
0: Alex Rondos, you, I think, are joining us from Nairobi. You're the EU Special Representative to the Horn of Africa. You're clearly following this situation um, extremely closely. Perhaps we should, in fact, have turned to you before Payton, given that we're the European Council on Foreign Relations. Can you talk us through what is at stake from an EU perspective and, and what you see as the, the potential role for Europe on this and, and what is needed in order to play that role? <laughs>
3: yeah uh, thank you very much Susie it's, it's it's fairly clear what's at stake for for the EU a set of values that we have. One is quite simply that there are a lot of people about whom and whose fate we know absolutely nothing because there is a blanket refusal to allow any access, uh, let alone any media to go. We don't know what is going on. What we do know is that the less we know the greater the likelihood of a catastrophe. That is the issue. And that is something that should confront every European because unfortunately, we're seeing things done that could haunt us because there are also, we could recognize things from our own history. When we see an individual ethnic group being profiled and separated, out. We Europeans are the last people who should be staying quiet. We should be the first. And I'm rather pleased to see that our high representative and other people in the political leadership have come out and been quite clear about this. But this is an absolutely fundamental issue. Second, we have a set of interests. First is that the conduct of these this this conflict, as it's begun to unfold in the last weeks, has possibly lit a fuse, that could result in a much more difficult period afterwards to reconcile a nation. Ethnicity has been conf- is confronting ethnicity. Therefore, are people going to end up cowering behind um, their sense of ethnic intransigence? or is there really going to be an effort that we can all believe in uh, and and feel we can invest in for the future that uh is going to be about a, a form of national a new eye sense of what is the national unity of an incredibly diverse country third we have A huge country in Ethiopia, 100 million, 110 million people. It's been a very difficult period for the last couple of years. Aspirations are colliding with the brutal realities of economics, uh, the need for jobs and the like. The classic issues of any transition. Now, what is worrying to us is that a conflict undertaken as it has been now, I'm not going to get into who caused and, you know, there's difference between a pretext and a trigger and a real cause of a conflict. Let's, let's not go into that now, except just to say that when you engage in conventional warfare, as has occurred for the last four weeks, and with the mobilization that's required, there is an astonishing uh, reallocation of resources to go into that. And in a country that is, not, is among the poorer in the world, what is the meaning of what impact does it have on the resources that are meant to be for the well-being of the rest of the country? And so in Europe, I think a lot of people who care about our fiduciary responsibility will also be asking, well, what's our money doing? Is it subsidizing a war or not? This is an issue that has been raised, and it will be raised, and it's an absolutely correct one to raise. Next point, which I think is very important, is a real concern we have for the stability of a region. And what has been happening in in the build up to this conflict and, and may well continue afterwards is we've noticed that there's been an alliance building between Eritrea and Ethiopia with Somalia involved in some way. And this has been to the exclusion of other neighbors of Ethiopia. And this has the potential of creating divisions in a region that has always been very fragile, and which is trying to build a level of, if you will, economic integration, diplomatic and political cohesion, in order to be able to navigate through the shoals of an increasingly complicated global environment, and especially the one nearby on the Gulf, the Red Sea, the Indian Ocean, where there is a lot of competition and it is focused on this region. So what is very worrying about this conflict for us is it's a security issue. It's the passage, security of the Red Sea, is are we going to see refugees? Are we going to see people, refugees who are radicalized? And I don't mean just religiously radicalized, traveling around, ex, being pushed out of Ethiopia. That becomes an issue for everyone. It's a global security concern, and it's certainly a European one.
0: Theo, can I come back to you and ask, um, Alex has talked about the role um, that European aid and aid from other actors can play in in the situation looking forward, and the sort of the potential questions um, being asked about sort of how how effectively that's being done. To what extent do you see consensus from EU states around how we should engage and how much priority uh, we need to place on on, on this situation? Who do you see as the sort of the key players um, within
1: that? Well, Susie, I, I think it's it's complicated by the kind of paramount position that Ethiopia holds in terms of the region. You know, it's really, it's really the central pillar of regional security. It is known to export security provision. It helps out in Somalia. It helps out in other places. It's the seat of the African Union. Ethiopia has never been colonized, and it doesn't have a history of allowing international engagement in any kind of its, you know, its, its political affairs, which is quite different from the rest of the region, take Somalia or, or Sudan. So I think that this makes the approach to Ethiopia, makes the conversation with Ethiopia a little bit difficult. There's basically a very high barrier that one has to overcome in order to address some of these issues. There's a very strong position that the Ethiopian government is taking right now, where it's defining what's going on, specific, but also very, very limited terms. It's not calling it a war or a conflict. It's a law enforcement action. Uh, it's not really recognizing that the situation has perhaps reached a level that merits you know, a different kind of response, both from it. As the, as the sovereign state responsible for its population, but also from the international community. So I think it has a sort of cooling effect on what might be otherwise a stronger European response, a stronger re- response from, from European nations. That being said, you know, what Alex has flagged is, is very good. I think Europe has been picking up on areas of principle that are universal and where Europe has a, has a real strength. And trying to build arguments and legitimacy for its role around those.
0: And you alluded to the fact, Addis Ababa is the the seat of the the African Union. How do you or others see this playing into the broader Europe? EU African Union conversation and Europe Africa strategy to, to, to what extent is Europe's engagement here going to be pivotal for that um, broader conversation?
1: I'm not sure that that the linkage has been created. I mean you're referring to the to the longer term strategy process between the between the EU and the AU between Europe and, and Africa. I think for the moment the situation in Ethiopia is being seen you know as, as a security and humanitarian issue. Whereas that strategy process is dealing with much more long-term and and diverse issues, you know, from continental free trade to to the Green New Deal to business financing and whatnot. But there is one aspect, and, and Alex rightly put his finger on it. You know, Ethiopia. This isn't this isn't the story that Ethiopia has been associated with for for recent times. I mean, Ethiopia has been a story of one of Africa's economic rising stars. It's been developing uh, at an incredible pace. It's been attracting international investment, including European. And it's probably correct that some of those investors right now are asking questions, one, as to whether or not their investments are still good business, i.e. is the situation going to deteriorate further? And then two, if it isn't just investment money, but aid and development, To what ends is it being used? And we've had these questions before, and it's something we need to be very careful of.
0: Maybe I could come back to you, Peyton, on, on this question. Can we expect the Biden administration coming in to welcome increased tension um, from, from Europe to this region, to this situation more broadly? To what extent should, should we expect a sort of Europe and um, US speaking with, with one voice on this issue, issue? To what extent should we expect this to be kind of seen as increasingly as Europe's neighbourhoods and therefore the, the European voice um, needing to be clearer?
2: Look, I think it's a little too early to anticipate exactly how the Biden administration will approach this question. I think we have a sense just from from public statements that the Vice President Biden's nominee for Secretary of State and his selection for National Security Advisor have made in the last six weeks or so on Ethiopia. I think we can take that as an indication that they're at least following the issue with some rigor. uh, And I think that's very, very encouraging. I think the question is, and both Theo and Alex have touched on this, is does our sort of normal toolbox for addressing these sorts of conflicts in, in the Horn of Africa that sadly we've seen for some years, is it going to be effective in this context? And I think there are real reasons to doubt that, actually. I mean, not just because of the sort of complexity of the issue and and the regionalization and the other sort of factors that we've discussed, the sheer size of, the kind of Ethiopia. But we've seen just in the last few weeks, as I, as I sort of said initially, really not, whether it's been the prime minister or others around him, you mentioned Eritrea, the sort of consensus that's developed internationally on the need for cessation of facilities, the need for humanitarian access, uh, unimpeded humanitarian access, the need for uh, political dialogue, those have really fallen on deaf ears. And so I think that challenges both the United States and our allies and partners in Europe to think through what a concerted transatlantic effort may be that brings some more creative tools to the table that are maybe more fit for purpose. It's a very fraught geopolitical environment. And doing so in a way that, as Alex rightly says, is anchored in our principles, but also through a clear recognition that this is just our, our interests as sort of Western countries in the horn are not solely altruistic. There are hard security uh, and economic interests in this region that are going to require a a concerted and considered strategy for defending and advancing. And and I think certainly the basis of that, in my view, would be a strong transatlantic partnership as we think through how to develop and, and execute a strategy in that regard.
0: Alex, does that chime with what you see as European expectations on how the relationship will play out?
3: Yes, I think so. I'd very much echo what Peyton has, uh, has just been suggesting. And I think it's, it's, it sort of behooves us in Europe to, you know, extend a hand and, and say uh, transatlantically and say, let's have now a very serious conversation about a part of the world that is, is of considerable geostrategic and geoeconomic significance. So that to me is, is, is a given, that this needs to occur, and, we, you know, we hope that there's something that that, that is, is going to be reciprocal. I think we've got to be very practical, though, and Peyton, Theo have mentioned these things, and I want to really emphasize this. The, the worry today is that we have a region with a population of six, some 6 million people, about which one knows very little because no one is allowed to know what's going on in there. And all the information we're getting is that an awful lot of people are really suffering. It's getting worse. We risk seeing famine. We risk seeing disease. We have human rights violations on already a scale that will merit very serious investigation and action subsequently. Now, let's start with some basics because access is needed now. And this requires the united voice and action of the international community, or those at least who believe that these things matter. And I think that is the first vital step that's needed. And this is where the transatlantic voice, which has always been a voice that has believed that charity, putting the human right at the middle of where we're, what we're trying to achieve, is absolutely fundamental. Otherwise, do we really have a moral leg to stand on? And do we have a policy on which to build? And I think it is going to have to be time, it can, time is going to come soon for the government in Ethiopia, if it claims to be sovereign and claims to be in charge, to demonstrate that people can have the liberty to go and provide assistance to anyone in need. This is fundamentally important. It will require some degree of cessation of hostilities, and this is a country of such size and whose uh, fate will affect so many beyond Ethiopia that uh, we've got to have some degree of conversation with Ethiopia, which will give us an assurance that our security interests will be met, our investments will bring some, we hope, benefit to to the Ethiopian citizens. These are fundamental. And so I I want to just reinforce the point about the need for a clear transatlantic approach and hopefully others can join us in in this. So that this is not a question of telling the Ethiopians what to do. The Ethiopians don't like being told what to do. It would be helpful to the Ethiopians and to us that they understand clearly where we stand. And I'm delighted that our political leadership in Europe, our Commission of Humanitarian Affairs, our high representative, have been about as clear as diplomacy allows. In fact, they've gone beyond the normal language. And I must say, it makes me really proud as a European to have seen them put themselves, our values and our interests right out there. No one in Ethiopia or government in Ethiopia can ever say they weren't told and that they didn't know what we thought.
0: And I think that is a very good point for us to wrap this conversation up on the substance. The last part of the podcast will, as usual, be the bookshelf, where we like to ask all participants to tell us what they're reading. Theo, let's start with you. What's on your bookshelf at the moment?
1: I I have a book looking reproachfully at me from the bookshelf because I haven't cracked it yet. (laughs) But it's it's titled uh, Afropean, and it's a really interesting study of somebody who themselves embodies the kind of, you know, cultural melding of, of Africa and Europe and an exploration of that experience, that cultural experience viewed through his travels through different European countries where he interacts, you know, both with African immigrants and then also gets in touch with his European side and kind of conveys all of that.
0: Thank you. Peyton, let's take you next. What are you reading?
2: Why be remiss in not giving a uh, public service announcement for a report that the U.S. Institute of Peace released... uh, We'd
0: be disappointed with anything else.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for indulging me. Uh, A report that the U.S. Institute of Peace released on a number of these dynamics that we've just discussed today about a month ago. That was the culmination of an 18-month effort by uh, a group of, of nearly a dozen former senior U.S. officials to reimagine U.S. strategy in the Horn of Africa, but in the context of these broader Red Sea dynamics... in recognition of the fact that the Horn of Africa has become an integral part of the security systems of the Middle East and the the Indo-Pacific and the Eastern Mediterranean. So certainly recommend that to anyone who's, who's interested in further reading. Personally, I'm in the midst of reading a recently published book by former Deputy Secretary of State Robert Zellick, called America and the World, in which he, through a series of anecdotes over 200-some years, sort of points out the successes of pragmatic American diplomacy, presumably making an argument for
3: the next four years of U.S. foreign policy.
0: Great. Thank you. And then, Alex, what about you?
3: Let me, first of all, give a hearty endorsement to Peyton's recommendation to read the report that uh, he and his colleagues have put out on the Red Sea. It's important, it's timely, and I think it's going to prove very, very relevant. Personally, the book that I've been reading is one about Ethiopia and Ethiopian history. It's a novel which was listed in the book for the Booker Prize, shortlisted by uh, The Shadow King by Maza Mengiste, a remarkable, remarkable piece of writing. It's about the Italian invasion, but it is also about the role that women have played it is written in a style that is sort of seduces and draws one in to this astonishing, partly tragic, but, but ultimately deeply sort of redemptive and, and, and inspiring. And I'd recommend it to anyone.
0: I will look that up. That sounds very good indeed. I'm also um, reading fiction at the moment. I'm belatedly reading Wimmer Among the Stars* by Kanish Ishiguro. It's a collection of short stories. Last night, um, I read *A United Nations in Space*, which is one piece in the collection, which looks at how, in the event of rapid climate change and various countries becoming uninhabitable, the relationships between different countries within the UN system might alter, and um, and also the sort of the personal relationships between diplomats at the UN in as well but that takes us to the end of our allotted time and I leaves just for me to say if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast please do let other people know by writing about it on your social media page or elsewhere but above all please do give us a good rating and review on whichever platform you use to download it so for now from Alex Rondos from Peyton Knopf Theo Murphy and myself Susie Dennison it's time to say goodbye The editor of this week's podcast is Marlena Riedel, and we'd all like to thank everybody for the participation in today's discussion.